0: our will to be cleansed from sin, but does not confess that even our will being cleansed comes to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. This person resists the Holy Spirit himself who says, he resists, I'm oh, sorry, the person who says that, the person who denies that even his own will turning to God was a grace of God, denies the Holy Spirit speaking through Solomon who says, the will is prepared by the Lord. For the Lord is at work in you, and then Paul, the words within work, ugh, the God is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or Canon 6, this is a long sentence, and then we'll try not to mumble it. If anyone says that God has mercy upon us when, apart from his grace, we believe, will, desire, strive, labor, pray, watch, study, seek, ask, or knock, but does not confess that it is by the infusion and inspiration of the Holy Spirit within us that we have faith, the will, or the strength to do the things we ought to do. Or if anyone makes the assistance of grace depend upon the humanity or obedience of man, this person does not agree that as a gift of grace, he contradicts the apostle saying, what do you have that you have not received? And, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So what he's saying, what this canon is saying is, even, even our desire to believe And will and strive and pray and study and seek and knock is a gift of grace. And to deny that it's a gift of of grace is to contradict the Apostle Paul who says, what do you have that you did not receive? And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's precisely what Luther and the reformers were arguing for It's Precisely what I was trying to argue for this morning. That's from a Catholic council from 529 AD. So in some sense, Luther wasn't saying anything new in regards to church history. He was just pointing out, man, we've really shifted here. From this understanding of divine sovereign grace to something that can be bought and sold in the marketplace um anyway so it was a recent relatively recent um i mean you got a 2000 year old church it's recent a shift in theology that had given rise in the last 400 years before luther's time anyway that's I, I mercifully cut that out of the message didn't think it was terribly purposeful there but i thought it'd be useful here anyway having said that questions thoughts complaints on this morning, Kevin.
1: Okay, I'm g- probably struggle with trying to articulate this, but I think you'll probably get the gist of it. Um, off the premise of what you mentioned this morning, in that grace is. Grace is the reason we would even turn to Christ or understand yes. that we need Christ. Yes. Brings me to wonder about the people that we know, maybe even ourselves, that think uh, we believe in Christ and know that we need Christ to have salvation, mm. yet we're not living our lives in a way that us as humans or what we understand from the bible um are not looking like we would what what we think of as um following christ okay is that am i making any sense here
0: that 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 opening <laughs> condition you see you're saying so let me summarize if what i'm saying about this i i'm not sure what the question is but you're saying uh, was there are people who profess to be Christians, we hope are Christians, who aren't acting very Christian-like, who aren't being very faithful in their day-to-day living. And
1: they would say they're Christians. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, how, how are we any different than them? It says here, that, or I wrote down because you said it, we must exercise our faith. Yes. That sounds like works. I mean, that sounds like um, something I'm doing... Solely based on myself, but yet everything I'm doing is gr- out of good. Is grace from God? Yeah. Uh,
0: I'm just, I'm just struggling with <laughs> you, you, and most of Christianity. Yes, this is tough stuff, Kevin. Don't feel bad. Keep, okay. Keep going. I, I think I get where you're, I think I get where you're going. Okay. Can we go to Philippians two? This I, I will try to deal with this in under. Ten minutes, not, not take our whole time this morning. A deeper treatment. The very first message I gave in our series on election predestination deals with what I'm going to try to give here, um, try to give here briefly. Philippians 2. The short answer, Kevin, is our dependence on grace does not remove the necessity or responsibility that we act and that we work um, I think the Apostle Paul argues it actually grounds it, as much as that's counterintuitive. And I will freely grant it's counterintuitive to say that. So Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul writes, um, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So I, I, I'm given a command by Paul to get to work doing something. But I do it in the confidence, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So I need to get to work. When I, when I go home today, I need to love and serve my wife. If I'm able to do that, it will only be because God has been at work in me to will and to do. And what I'm rather supposed to is rather than say, okay, then I'm gonna let go and let God, this is, this is what became known as Keswick theology, and I'm, not, I'm just gonna be a jerk to my wife until the spirit moves in me and makes me be nice. I'm gonna go try to obey God's commands, trusting in the fact that God's promised me grace, and he's promised to not only cause me to do it, but to incline my heart, so I'm gonna go try in faith to do this. I need to get to work loving my wife, but I'm doing it not trusting in my own human strength, but trusting in grace. So Paul, counterintuitively, and I'll grant that it's counterintuitive, says precisely because God supplies grace and God works, get to work. Intuitively, I'd think if God's gonna cause me to willing to do, then I can kick back, relax, let go and let God. So that's, I, I get what you're getting at, which is it would seem, if God's doing it all, we're off the hook for responsibility, we don't have to do anything, we don't, to, we don't have to work hard, we don't have to do what the Puritans called holy sweat, we can just kick back and let God do what God's gonna do. Que sera, sera. That's not the currency Paul makes with it. That, that's the short answer. The full message from the spring is trying to unpack that more. Does that get at what you're getting at or are you going somewhere different? So,
1: no, that's right. But So if, if someone doesn't have that conviction, did, it's hard for us. We shouldn't judge, but does that mean that they don't have salvation if they're not being convicted to do what I guess we would sit back and say you should go to church, you should read your Bible, you should yeah. you know there's a whole bunch of you shoulds. Yeah. But if those people aren't doing that, if I'm not doing that, it, does that mean we should question our faith?
0: Short or answer, their faith. Short answer, with a lot of qualifications to follow. Yes. Question. Because we, we should give, we could
1: be at different ranges of yes. sanctification. Yes. I'm sure that I know there was times in my life that I wasn't where I needed to be. Does that mean I wasn't saved at that time or was that just a process of sanctification?
0: No, <laughs> no. agree. Let me give the qualifications that follow my <laughs> yes now. Um, we give evidences and signs and God give ev- gives evidences of signs of grace at work within us. So one of them is how do we respond to sin? The, to me, the biggest evidence of where someone's at spiritually is how they deal with sin when it's brought to their attention. Because we can sin in ignorance, but. Um, Is God disciplining them? Because Hebrews says he disciplines all his sons, and if you go without discipline, you're not a son. Um, Are you happy in your sin, or is it evidence that God's hand is on you and you're, you're being convicted? How do you deal when you see it? Do you not care? How do you deal with brothers coming and talking to you? Now, over time, that begins to build up evidence. Ultimately, at the end of the day, what church discipline at this final step is, is the body saying, we've been pleading with you, talking to you, and you've built up such a mountain of evidence of not listening to us and hardening your heart that we're not sure we can treat you like a brother anymore. Now even then, we're not saying we know for certain you're not a Christian. What we're saying is you, you've, you've reached the point of evidence level that we think we ought to regard you and pray for you and interact with you as an unbeliever right now. But it's a, it's a building up of, it's not one thing. It's really the hardened heart of persistent hardening when someone comes and says, hey, because like, like you say, In sanctification, we we have bad days, we have good days. It's what happens when somebody confronts you? What happens when someone convicts you? What happens when the Spirit shows you something? Now what do you do? To me, that's the question. Because now the stakes just got raised. You can either harden your heart and say, I don't care. You know what I mean? I'll talk to people sometimes. It's not often, but sometimes people will be honest enough to say, I know it's wrong, but I don't care. To which I will usually respond something like, you've just made that issue the God of your life. What do you mean? Well, you've just said, the one who I call God wants me to do X, but I'm going to do Y. Clearly then, X is not your highest principle, your highest value. If, if, if God was God, you'd try to obey God, you'd try to obey God. You're saying, "I'm not even going to try. I'm going to do this other thing." Okay, It might be helpful to identify what is sitting on the throne of your heart right now because it's not the living God. Um, so helping people realize, when you harden your heart to willfully resist not the sins of accident not the sins where we give in to temptation but where we just say no i don't care um we're in dangerous territory and there are some biblical warnings that if we persist in them should get louder and louder and louder in our ears probably the most frightening would be hebrews ten twenty six and following that if we go on sinning willfully there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins but only the certain fearful expectation of fiery wrath and indignation that will devour the adversaries of god now, even there, it doesn't say that's going to happen to you. It says that's what you should expect. So even there, Hebrews 10 falls short of saying, and you're going to hell. If you keep on sinning willfully against the conviction and the body, and the, <laughs> you're probably not a Christian, is what Hebrews is saying. And even there, it's probably. You know, prove, prove me wrong. So it's, it's a matter of giving... Of, it's not a bar of how obedient are you. It's, it's more of an issue of what direction you're heading in. Are you crawling, limping along towards holiness? Praise God, brother. Are you hardening your heart and falling further and further away from God? Get worried. And that's more of a trajectory, so it's less of, okay, that person isn't reading the Bible, they're not a Christian. No, it's over time, and we try to talk to this person, and they tell you to get lost, and they tell you, you now we're making more and more of an indication of what somebody is, who they are, as they evidence what's in their heart by what they say and what they do. But at a certain point, yeah, we say the fruit of your heart is showing, and it seems to be thorns and thistles. We're concerned about you. you, know, you know, does that make sense, Kevin, at all? or I want to avoid it being a simple, you don't do X, therefore you're not a Christian. I want it to be more of a fruit bearing, what's the garden of your life look like? What type of fruit is it? Which I think is how Jesus comes at it. No good tree bears bad fruit, no bad tree bears good fruit. By their fruits, you will know them.
1: Good. Slippery slope that yes. we... We need to remind ourselves every time we think we did something good, yes I, we can't do anything good, so the response of, if you uh, if you confront somebody about something and their response is not what it should be, and you confront somebody else and their response is what it should be, we can't say well we can't if we're that person, we can't boast in the fact no. that hey, we were humble and we no doesn't come from us.
0: Right. No, in fact, if you read the the Puritans or some of the older Christians, when they talk about assurance of salvation, they'll talk about evidences of grace. To make it really clear, it's not works, it's not something, it's not about what you're doing. It's evidences that God's grace and his spirit are at work in your life. So that when you talk to that person and they heard you, that's an evidence of grace, that's an evidence of God. What else but the Holy Spirit could account for why somebody would not tell you to get lost when they challenged you on something? Oh, you know what I mean? It's the same logic of Hebrews, if, even being disciplined. I mean, honestly, when I see people hardening their heart and then God seems to be disciplining them, that's an evidence in my mind of grace. Father's treating them like a kid. You know, I mean, no, honestly, I get no, I'm never more scared for someone than someone who's hardening their heart and seems to be happy and peaceful and all's going well with the world for them because it doesn't look like they're, if it, the one of his kids, it doesn't look like the good shepherds leaving the 99 and going after them. Now time will tell, but it doesn't look that way, and it gets alarming. Um, So there's a lot of evidences we can point to. and, And again, I think it's much more, what is the predominant fruit, not one particular thing? And again, finally, only a body of believers, not any individual believer, has the final authority to decide to break fellowship with somebody. I mean, that's another safety catch. It's not my call or your call or Bob's call. Jesus says, if they won't talk, to, if they won't listen to you, the body, then let him be to you all as an unbeliever. So only a body can come to one mind and agree we are treating this person as unbeliever. So that is a fearful responsibility. No individual Christian has the right to do that. Um, only a body can, can agree to that. So yeah, oh, Jeff and Renee. We have oh we have two mic people now. Colleen, we got another mic person. Something we can do.
2: I just have a follow up yes to that I, when he start, when he Kevin, Kevin started talking a little bit or his first question was so we're working and how but I can't work if somebody's working does that mean they're trying to work for salvation mm-hmm. and I I was reminded of 2 Thessalonians 3:10 where Paul says if you won't work, neither shall you eat. And what that precipitated from was that the believers-
0: catching, it's catching, Jeff.
2: Thanks, Jeremy. They were sitting around waiting for God to come back, for Christ to come back. We don't need to work, we don't have to do anything. Now, that isn't exactly the same point that Kevin had brought up, but I think it's parallel enough that we work As Christians because we are compelled to by what Christ did for us so when Paul says that we we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling it doesn't mean that we have to work for our salvation that it it doesn't say work for it says work out yeah I mean letters words mean things right so we're working out which means we already have it Mm -hmm. so we aren't working for it because we don't have it yet, so that was my only comment.
0: So. In indeed,
2: Amen. and Renee has a different question, but I don't know if it's her turn yet.
0: Okay, uh, since <laughs> I can't find the verse I'm looking for, Renee, go. Um.
3: Okay. No, no. So I'm, th- I'm. I'm. Yes. You're still thinking, but you
0: can do two things at one time. I, 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 I have a line that, for that, but I'm I not going to say it. <laughs> but uh, we'll try. Go, go, go.
3: <laughs> I. Um, would like you to explain a little bit more about if we are completely dead and our spiritual eyes are completely darkened, and then you, on the other hand, speak of repentance and um, counting the cost. I don't think Mm. a dead person can count the cost effectively. So how does that work into the grace that we talked about today?
0: Fantastic question. And my computer's bugging out. Okay, if you talk about, An ordo salutis, which is Latin for order of salvation. Um, The classic formulations from the Reformation on would go as I'm about to lay it out. And I want you to think not in time, but causality. Um, So you turn the light switch on, that causes the light bulb to go on. It's, It's not about at 102, the light switch was flipped, and at 103, the light went on. It's what causes what. According to John 3, As I understand John three, Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit says you can't. The command is to believe. Nowhere in John three does Jesus tell Nicodemus how, what he can do to be born again. He says you must be born again, but nowhere does. And here's what you do to be born again. What he does say in John three sixteen is that if you believe, you'll be saved. But he says earlier in verses three and four, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, "'The natural man does not understand "'the things of the Spirit of God, "'for they're folly to him, and he cannot accept them.'" So my understanding of what the Bible teaches in an order of salvation is the initial work of God is regeneration. You believe because you're born again, not you're born again because you believe. I don't believe, I don't think the Bible teaches what's called decisional regeneration so that a new a change in the heart occurs. Go to Acts 14, or is it 16? One of the two, hold on. Go to Acts teen, something teen in Acts. And uh, I'll have it underlined, so it'll be, I'll be able to find it quickly. Lydia, um, yeah, 16, 14. Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. There's a work of God in Lydia's heart that was the cause and not the effect of her paying attention to and subsequently believing in the gospel. Now I would argue that if you combine the Bible's teaching on this, that's what we'd call regeneration, a change of heart. You were blind. Another biblical metaphor, there was a veil put over your face so you could not see. Um, Yeah, go to 2 Corinthians 4. That uses the veil metaphor. I think it's helpful there as well. So the first piece is, in, in space and time, if you're getting out of eternity past where God chooses, but for salvation as we experience it, the first step would be a change, a work of the Spirit in our hearts, a, a principle of life where we go from being dead to made alive, that's the same little order Paul uses in Ephesians 2. While you're, while you're turning to Second Corinthians 4, re- listen again to Ephesians 2. He, while we were dead in our sins, he made us alive, and that takes place in verse five. Faith doesn't get mentioned until verse eight. So in Paul's description of how God saved us, he starts by saying he made you alive in Christ, then he says you you had believed and had salvation. So 2 Corinthians chapter four, there we go, okay. Verse three, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, when you and I proclaim the gospel to people, this is another metaphorical way of speaking of spiritual death. The unbeliever cannot see anything beautiful in that message. I mean, they can understand it propositionally. An unbeliever can track with the sentence you're saying, they could diagram it, they could repeat back to you what you're saying. What they can't see is anything beautiful or good in it. Because it's a veil over their eyes. They don't see this as beautiful. It's like me trying to bring you a, a, your favorite piece of food, but it looks to you like rotten you know, trash. They, they, they have a veil, and so when you p- put Christ in front of them, it seems ugly, seems unattractive. The cure to that blindness is not anything they do. Look at this. Um, verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light, the knowledge, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now what is Paul comparing the removal of the veil to? For God who said let light shine out of darkness, when did God say let light shine out of darkness? Creation. In response to who? Nobody. Nobody said hey God it would be a really good idea right now if you said let there be light. It is the ultimate on his own action. Just as God said, let there be light, God says, let there be your veil removed. And then all of a sudden, you see. And, and you respond freely. This is partly getting back to your question of how we take responsibility. See, God's grace doesn't make us robots. By grace, we see what's really there. And when you see what's really there, you love it. Jesus you find him compelling you find him attractive you don't want this mud and filth that you've been clinging on to so I would say if you view regeneration as the cause and not the effect I completely agree a dead person can't repent or count the cost but I go a step further and say a dead person can't believe they're dead if you're given life and if you're made to see all of a sudden like you're in the Alps and you're in a hotel room but there's blinds in front of the window and all of a sudden the blinds get pulled and now you're looking out at the Alps and all their glory and splendor no one's making you go, whoa. I mean, the worship just comes out of your mouth. In the same way, you see Christ, you see your sin, you see your state, you have spiritual life. Now you're in a position where you can believe, but I'd say now you're also in a position where you can count the cost, where you can repent. That that all of that is is required by some sort of change in the heart. The reason I want to get this out of time is I don't want you to think there are regenerate people walking around who haven't come to faith. It's, I, it's the work of the Spirit, Paul, no Peter ascribes the new birth to the Spirit, and James ascribes the new birth to the Word. So in Peter, um, you were born again by the the Word of God, and in James, no, it, sorry, I'm getting this wrong. Let me slow down. I've had too much caffeine. In John three, you're born again by the Spirit. In First Peter one, and then James one, you're born again by the Word. By His own will, He brought us forth as a kind of first fruits by the Word of truth, James one eighteen. So. The new birth is a sovereign work of God where the Spirit applies the word to my heart and opens my eyes. Um, so I don't believe God ever grants life where the gospel is not present. So there is no time where people are regenerate, born again, and not believing. It's as f- simple as we pull the blinds away and you go, whoa, and you respond to the view of the Alps. You respond to the glory of Christ and the gospel. There is no Ten minutes later, but I do think, based on First Corinthians, Corinthians two fourteen and John three um, three through seven, we can speak of it causally. I I understand because the veil is removed. I see because I was blind, but now I see because the Spirit has done a work in my heart. Or in Acts, Lydia paid attention because her heart was opened by God. So that's probably a long explanation, Renee. But is that Jeff? Follow it up.
2: I was just thinking her question was, how does a dead person count the cost? Yes. And then, so he can't. No, he can't. So if Christ has got any economy of words, you have to wonder, why did you say such a thing? Because it's impossible. But it makes me wonder then about people who are enthralled with the Christian message. They're attracted to it, but yet they refuse it. So maybe the parable where Christ says, you know, the man who decides to, build a house and then doesn't have enough money to finish it now he's he's embarrassed maybe jesus is warning those people well, and maybe he's also talking about now the church my church is embarrassed because there are people like you that are claiming to be and then you do stupid things you fall away <clears throat> you never yeah. were you know i don't know I'm where i'm going sure with that.
3: That i would ask i would in my gospel presentation or my evangelism that i would go to count the cost because I, I know as an unbeliever, they can't. So now that, cha- I mean, that is, that's why this is all turning sure. in there.
0: but you'd have to add on as well. Jeff, your short answer, how can a dead person do that? They can't. My next statement would be, how can a dead person believe? Th- that's, I guess, the follow-up. So in, in, when I present the gospel, I'm, I'm assuming either God's spirit is going to show up with power and rip off a veil, speak life to a dead heart, Replace ears of stone with ears of flesh. Replace a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Give them eyes to see. Give them ears to hear. Regenerate them. All the different biblical metaphors I can think of. Either the Spirit's going to do that, and they will be able to understand as beautiful what I'm saying, or the Holy Spirit won't. If the Holy Spirit does that, counting the cost and repenting won't be a problem. If the Holy Spirit doesn't do that, believing is going to be a problem. So I I would lump it as a package deal. I, I would just push it... If you, I mentioned semi-Pelagianism this morning, which is, a, like I said, I don't care if people get these terms, the concepts, and you can go back in our sermon archive to 2015 Christmas time, right after we did three weeks on Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we did a week on original sin, um, and uh, there's basically three views of the way people are apart from grace, technically four, but three for the sake of simplicity. One. They're all good, that's Pelagianism, and that's the view condemned as heresy in the Roman church. Not many people hold to it today. Well, not many Christians hold to it today. The view that we're born good, or good. Um, but Pelagius' cousin Semi, semi sorry, as a joke. Semi-Pelagianism, I think, is alive and well in the church, and that's the view that each one of us has a measure of good and bad in us. And that's the view that's necessary to hold that a person can believe apart from grace. In that view, you're the drowning person who's got just enough spiritual good left in you to take hold of Christ when he reaches out for you. But you don't have enough life in you to repent, count the cost, do anything else, but you have just enough to grab on. And under that view, which is what I think is probably the dominant view, not articulated, not consciously held, but I think it is probably the dominant view in the Western church at the popular level, um, it's going to lead to a... a uh, for lack of a better term, easy believism, it's gonna to lead to a just ask Jesus into your heart because you get just enough to do it. Then the notion is, this is what I was taught at Word of Life, once you're born again, because that's gonna go with it, will be decisional regeneration. If you, once you grab onto Christ's hand, now you'll be born again. And now that you're born again, you can see and you can repent, you can do all these things. So you're coming at the persons so that they have just a sliver of goodness in them, just a sliver of life in them, just enough to hold on by faith. That's the very thing Luther's attacking, that's the very thing the reformation is going against. It's saying no, you're dead. D E A D dead. dead. You you need to be born. Children don't birth themselves. Mothers birth children. I've have seen it. Been there. Done. Yes, I've never seen a child birth himself and or herself. And so that's that's precisely the point they're they're arguing over is does is it the case of natural man that they have enough in them apart from grace to believe? And I I think, the, I think Ephesians 2 slams the door on that. You were dead, you were following the course, You're, I mean, locks step with the world, and God made you alive, and God saved you, and God gave you faith, and God, I would say, gave you the grace to do all the rest of it. That even the gift of repent, even repentance, according to Acts, um, go to Acts 11. Acts 11. In Acts 11, Peter has just gone back to the Jerusalem church to report what the first full-on Gentile converts in Cornelius and his household. And um, verse 15, Peter speaking. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as us at the beginning. And I remembered how the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They understood repentance as God's gift. So I'd say the same thing. You can repent if God gifts you repentance. And I'd say you could count the cost if God gifts you that. Um, So does that... Hold on a second. Elsa wants to jump in. What, she has the, Renee has the mic. If, Renee, you want to go further than that or, oh, oh, you don't have the mic. Okay, Elsa Want? oh, sorry, Cody wants the mic now.
4: Um, I guess I'll just kind of start this one with a, a leading question. Um, am I right in understanding that uh, basically the concept was being born again is all, com- it's all completely all completely God calling you in there's it's like absolutely nothing that you can do on your own you know it's it's just him completely
0: it's the wind blowing Jesus description of Mm -hmm. this indicates our zero participation uh, a pause yes I agree with you theologians speak of parts of salvation that are monergistic and synergistic you get synergy, people working together, a group working, multiple people working. Monergism would simply be one person working alone. So classically, regeneration is a monergistic act of God. You do nothing. You are acted upon. You don't birth yourself. You don't life yourself. You're passive entirely. Sanctification, you're working out your salvation, fear, and trembling, even as God is working in you. There's synergy in some sense there. Um, but no, classically speaking, um, the church has understood, at least the, the, my understanding of, the, of this is that regeneration is a monergistic act of God. Listen to Jesus describe the new birth in John 3, 7 through 8. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So there's something like the wind blowing is like people being born of the spirit. What's the comparison? The wind blows where it wishes and you simply feel it as it goes by. You can't predict where it's going. You certainly can't influence where the wind goes. You recognize it happening when, when uh, it blows by and you feel it on your face. The spirit gives life where he wills. He births where he wills and you recognize it when you hear the newborn baby cry but you can't predict where he's going next, and you certainly can't influence where he's going, but when people come to faith, you go, oh, the Holy Spirit must have just blown by and birthed somebody. So no, yes, I, my understanding based on this, the metaphor in 2 Corinthians four, where the veil gets removed, is like God speaking in Genesis one, that the new birth is entirely monergistic. It's, it's an act of God's sovereign free grace. We do not initiate it, we do not invite it, um, you can intercede on it for other people, like Moses for the people of Israel. You can pray God, give life. I pray that God births my kids, that God grants faith and life to my kids. Um, and, and I think those are prayers that he's pleased with, but I can't make him do it. You know, at the end of the day, I got to trust in his grace, right? So so are you going somewhere with that? I agree. I agree with yeah. what you're saying. So go.
4: So uh, I guess it is, the background that i'm kind of getting out to this you know i can definitely see like and and i've had conversations with people at work who i know would take this exact argument and be like oh well if if it's all completely god deciding you know if it's all essentially predestination you know yeah. it just kind of re- essentially removes any uh, any responsibility on our part so i just always have a i guess just kind of a difficult time dealing with that one with them but Um, Do you think it's also maybe possible that a person could maybe view the glory of God, or kinda like how you described pulling the shades, seeing the Alps, and then deciding that they wanna close it again, and then open it again later?
0: No, I I don't think that's possible. Uh, It's, I guess, conceptually possible. In a sense, Adam and Eve, with unhindered eyes, saw God as he chose to reveal himself, and they didn't want him. They traded the truth for a lie. But in all cases where I'm aware, when the spirit works in this way, when God births life, um, when the veil is removed, he, he's going to, what's Paul saying in Ephesians, I'm confident that he began a good work and you will finish it, bring it to completion. That God doesn't start a saving process and then leave it alone. The problem you brought up with um, responsibility, go to Romans 9. And I, and I grant freely, the biggest problem with this understanding is what about human responsibility? What about moral culpability? I got good news and bad news for you. The good news is the Apostle Paul anticipates and names exactly that objection. I'm not sure you're going to find his answer very satisfying. <laughs> it's, it's challenging. Uh, but, but the fact that Paul anticipates the objection to me is very strong... Um, proof that I think we're understanding him rightly so if you pick up where I quoted from this morning in verse oh uh, let's pick it up in verse 14 what shall we say then is there injustice with God you gotta go back further really he's just quoted verse 13 "Jacob Jacob I loved Esau I hated and then he quotes he says what shall we say then is there injustice on God's part by no means for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or an exertion, but on God who has mercy. So if the, the assumption here is not that God chose to hate Esau unconditionally, just because I feel like hating somebody. No, Esau is a sinner, and Esau is worthy of hatred, but his love of Jacob is completely free. Jacob is equally deserving of hatred, but God says in his grace, I'm going to love Jacob. Then the objection he anticipates is, is there injustice with God? By no means. And he goes back to Exodus. Don't you remember when God first said, hey, I'm God, here I am? He told Moses, I mercy whom I mercy. There's no injustice if God says, even though he deserves wrath, I'm going to love Jacob. I do no wrong to Esau when I pay him what's just and right if I want to be gracious to the other vineyard worker and give him more than they deserve. Now, this is hard stuff for us, but Paul takes it head on, doesn't shy away from it, doesn't pretend the problem's not there. It gets worse. It gets worse. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy in whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So Paul has just said at the end of the day, feynman what word was that? Wow. <laughs> Jeff, I think you've made it worse final causality final dependence at the end of the day what does it depend upon does it depend upon me or god i do have to believe i do have to repent i do have to do that it has to happen what does it finally depend upon verse 16 it depends not on human will or exertion but on god who has mercy for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he mercies whom he mercies, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. Then your objection, an objection I spoke to somebody this morning, same question. You will say to me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? How, how, how can God into that scheme, punish anybody if salvation ultimately depends on his mercy and his grace freely bestowed? So Paul anticipates that, which, pause before we look at his answer, which means I think I'm understanding him rightly, because if Paul was teaching the opposite, if Paul said ultimately it's going to depend on each person, every person has a decision to make, and God's a gentleman, and he stays out of it, and you get to do what you want, and everyone gets a chance, and God respects that, no one is going to respond to that by saying, well then how on earth does he judge for who resists his will? You're only going to say that if you've heard Paul say, it depends on God then you're gonna say, which is what everyone says when this clicks, that's what you're saying, then how does he find fault? So I take comfort that Paul anticipates that. His answer is simply, you're clay, you don't get to ask questions like that to God, which is not a terribly satisfying answer. Who are you a man to answer back to God? Why does he still find fault? So I, I will freely, freely admit that the, the problem of causality and guilt is one of the most challenging things to take. We tried to deal with this some in our four-week series on election predestination. I think the first two messages dealt almost exclusively to this issue and, and trying to unpack how as much detail as, we, as I think we can find in the Scripture on it. But even then, there's still mysteries left. This isn't something I can completely explain. But yeah, that's what I think he's saying. And yeah, I agree. That's the knee-jerk, wait a second, that we're going to say. You, absolutely.
4: And I, th- and I think that knee-jerk reaction like that comes from us having yeah, way too much thought of ourselves. I mean, yeah. it's like, why, you know, how can God judge you know, one and then choose the other? It's, that's the wrong question. It's, you know, how could God even choose you to be saved in the first place when all of us are completely deserving?
0: No, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I think that the way you tell the story changes everything. The Bible's story is not of the really nice people and the capricious, fickle God. The Bible story is about the really terrible people. The people who again and again and again and again and again thumb their nose, raise their fist at God, and yet this God is patient with them and amazingly offers to save all of them and will in fact save some of them regardless. That's the amazing story of the Bible. When You put God at the center. You put man at the center and you end up with God sort of well, how do you explain yourself, God? You were nice. To the, yeah, it, it's The Bible's narrative, as early as Genesis, is the thoughts of man's heart, every one of them is continually evil. And how does God deal with the people whose thoughts and intentions of their hearts are continually evil? Does he wipe the earth away with them? Never again after the flood, he's patient, he's long-suffering, he's gracious, he sends prophets, he sends his word, he calls them again and again, why will you perish? Why will you perish? Come unto me, be saved. And they still don't want to come. Well, by golly, he's going to save some. That's that's I think the story of, of the gracious God in the Bible, but it, it all depends how you tell it. It all depends how you tell it. Other questions, N- uh, Naomi. Well, El- <clears throat> Naomi and Elsa, whichever order the mics get to them in. Well, they both have mics. Elsa, you go first, then Naomi. Yep.
5: And please tell me if this is right. If you look this at this is right. If you look at John six. where Jesus explains he's the bread of life. He had all these disciples following him, right? And then he was talking about um, elected people, about eating his flesh, drinking his blood, explaining salvation. And his disciples turned to him and said, this is a hard saying. (laughs) Who can follow this? And they turned away from him. Up to that point, they were his disciples, right? And they all turned away and left. I think they counted the cost and decided, no, we can't do this. Were they following him intellectually? Because you can have people who can intellectually understand what the Bible is saying, but their hearts haven't been changed. And when they look at this, they think, no. No. I'm not going to do this. Because that whole parable about counting the cost was in response to Jesus explaining, you will take up your cross and follow me.
0: Well, I, I, in John 6, as you're talking about, um, I love the fact that Jesus... <laughs> the, here's, here's the thing. I don't want to shove the difficulties of predestination in people's faces, but Jesus in no way is embarrassed about this. So Jesus has just told them the whole, no one can come to me unless the Father sent me, draws him eat my flesh, drink my blood. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And Jesus didn't say, no, no, guys, you've misunderstood me, it's okay. He said, knowing in himself that the disciples are grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? (laughs) Like That bugs you? You thought that was difficult? And then, where does he give the credit? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some who did not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said this, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Jesus' response when they start to leave us, see, I told you you couldn't believe this stuff without divine aid. (laughs) I mean, he doesn't apologize for it. And again, I don't want to, you know, Shove it in people's face, but I also don't want to be apologetic and embarrassed over things that a ton of the disciples like. Yeah, we can't. Th- that's too much. Nope, uh, going home. And Jesus' response is, "Yeah, I told you." <laughs> I mean, so Naomi.
6: So this could whoa. <laughs> this, Hot Mike. <laughs> there we. This could possibly be explained by um, God gives grace to who He gives grace, but I was just. It just occurred to me, um, if someone thinks that they come to faith by their own works, are they then not saved, or is it possible that God could still give them grace regardless of that and save them?
0: Absolutely, you don't need to be aware that grace is a gift to get saved. In fact, most of the New Testament is written to people who are saved to explain to them what happened, (laughs) right? Let Let me tell you what happened when you became a Christian. Let me tell you the meaning of the cross. But it's written to Christians. And if, the, if you had to understand all this stuff before you became a Christian, there wouldn't be much point in explaining it to Christians. They'd already know it, right? So no, absolutely. There are, there are, <laughs> the vast majority of the church in the West does not believe this. Uh, and I don't think that means they're not Christians. It means they're inconsistent, or it means they're in error in some point, but it doesn't mean they're not a Christian. Not at all. Um, this is not an essential teaching. Now, the fact that Jesus, in evangelism, can bring this stuff up, because some people will say, okay, fine, we believe in predestination, just don't ever teach it because it drives people away. And we want people to get saved. So you can teach it in your small groups, you can teach it in your Bible studies. Don't teach it from the pulpit because uh, that drives people away. Well, John 6, Jesus used it in his evangelism. And so, again, we don't want to hobby horse it every week's on predestination. But we don't want to run away from it. It's One of the reasons I like teaching verse by verse of the Bible, we'll teach it on election and predestination as often as it comes up in Luke just as we'll teach on other things as often as they come up in Luke. But no, you don't, you don't need to believe this to be saved. No. And hallelujah for that. I, you know what I mean? Uh, yes, yes. Oh, we got a question from Colleen.
6: Okay. All right, so um, as Renee mentioned, if, you, if God doesn't give you grace, then you can't even count the cost of not, right? Yes. So God has to grant me the grace, And then I understand or, or, you know, I believe I'm saved. But then as Cody had asked if it could be taken away and you had kind of led to no, I mean, once you have it, you have it. I remember when we were talking predestination, I remember asking Daniel something like, so can I be going along and I believe that I'm saved and I believe that the spirit is within me and, and then because of God's will, he could take it away and I could actually be doomed to hell at some time. And he kind of said, well, yes, you know, I hope that doesn't happen, but sure. So then that kind of goes against what Cody...
0: Okay, here's, here's, I, I, and I can check and I'd encourage you to tackle Daniel because I'm quite confident you misunderstood him or he misspoke. One okay, of good. Two. You, you may have understood him perfectly well and he spoke poorly, but I'm quite confident one of those two things happened. From our perspective, we identify trees by the fruit they bear. We absolutely can be mistaken in what we think fruit is. We can think something's a fruit tree and it's a thorn tree and we can think something's a thorn tree and it in reality is a fruit tree. We can be mistaken. What can't be the case is that somebody... So there can be people who look like Christians who then, oh, it looks like they're going to hell. That that, that can happen. Absolutely it can. I mean, look at Charles Templeton. He was... um, he was uh, roommates with Billy Graham on Evangelistic Crusades before Billy Graham got really big and famous. In fact, Charles Templeton, he went on to announce sports in Canada, and he wrote a book about why he wasn't a Christian. He, f- he went off to seminary, a liberal seminary. It eroded his confidence in the Bible, and that eroded his faith, and he ended up dying as an atheist in Canada a couple of years ago. All the evidence would appear, this is a goat. This is not someone who's going to be in heaven. And yet, for a while there, This guy was preaching the gospel. People were saved under his ministry. Things looked great. But the predominance of the fruit, the fact that the good shepherd didn't go after him with decades of time afterward. Now, I still ultimately don't know. I'm still speaking what it looks like because I don't know. And I'm not called to know. But to the degree that I need to size up a tree, that looks like a thorn tree. But it's a thorn tree that at the beginning looked really like a fruit tree. Conversely, the opposite can happen. Now, that so that can happen people can be self-deceived jesus tells us on the day of judgment there are many people who thought they were christians lord lord did we not do these things in your name they're genuinely confused i don't think they're bluffing i don't think they're we know we're not christians but we're going to see if we can lie to god and fool him i really think they're genuinely perplexed i thought i was yours depart from i never knew you so that's absolutely possible And i'm thinking that's what Daniel is saying, can a person think there? Can a person give evidence? And then they're not. Now, what can't happen, and the New Testament is equally clear on this, 1 John 2, they departed from us to show they are never of us, for if they were of us, they would not have departed. Someone falls away from the faith. They didn't lose their salvation. They showed they were never of us. Or Hebrews 3, 14, for we have become partakers in Christ if we hold our confidence firm to the end. If I don't hold my confidence firm to the end, I never became a partaker in Christ. Now, there's something in the past happened. I became, past tense, because yes, Jeff, words matter. I became a partaker in Christ in the past if I hold fast to the end. So it's not that I lose my salvation. I I confirm this past event by my current faithfulness. So that's what I'm confident Daniel believes. But even more to the point, that's what I'm confident the Bible teaches. But from our perspective, where we don't know what God has done, because we don't see it, we can be deceived, we can be misled, we can be in error on those points.
6: But if the Spirit's not within us, we have no drive to even, or to even fake it. So then that, how can I, I believe that I am, but I'm really not, but I would have no drive to even believe
0: that. Yes and no. Um, There's, in our culture still, there's plenty of reasons. What? What do you? What do you got? Yeah, they, There's. There's always something beautiful and something repellent in the gospel and in Christ to the world. J- Jesus. People in the countryside loved the free food. They loved the works of power. They loved the entertainment value of signs and miracles. They. I think liked him ripping apart the Pharisees. I think they proved that. Once they got what he was saying about their sin, about their condition, they didn't like that. Our culture right now, this is, I'll give you an example. Our culture loves Jesus' beatitudes. Turn the other cheek, don't judge, um, be patient. They hate Jesus' sexual ethics. It's the exact opposite in, in the East, where Islam loves Jesus' sexual ethics. And in an honor culture, they hate the turn the other cheek stuff. No, you kill, you do honor killings in Islam you restore the family honor <laughs> at all costs. So in both cases, something is repellent and something is beautiful about Jesus and his message. And that's always going to be the case. Um, Jonathan Lehman wrote a book, The Surprising Offense of God's Love, that throughout history, that's, there's always something beautiful and attractive and always something unattractive, which is why there's always a temptation to shave off the offensive bit, which is what the liberal church does nowadays. What's the liberal church in America do? They keep the turn the other cheek and they dr- cut off the sexual ethics. And so the liberal church in America is like, no, that's totally cool. And now they've got nothing offense. They're dying, like numbers-wise, but they've removed the offense of the gospel. And you could do the same thing in, in, in the East. You could you know, teach the Jesus' sex ethics and get rid of the turn-the-other-cheek you know, forgiveness stuff, and you'd, you'd be a lot more palatable there as well. But there's always going to be something that pushes people away apart from grace, and always going to be something that's somewhat attractive, even without grace. So even without grace... Parts of Jesus' message, parts of his teaching can be beautiful and attractive. But you're not seeing the whole picture as an unbeliever. And once you start to see the whole picture, you're going to hate it. So does that... get Okay, Naomi, and we're done. Naomi, you're bringing us home here, so this better be good.
6: What about in the case of Saul, King Saul, where God took his love away? Then does that mean that Saul was never saved?
0: That is one of the questions that gets hotly debated in the Old Testament. Absolutely. That's a great question. Very astute, Naomi. God tells David, I will not, in the Davidic covenant, 37 points, Naomi, seriously. Well done. No, this girl's sharp. Hold on, listen to the Davidic covenant and its implications. And uh, the simple answer I'm gonna tell you is I don't know. Uh, No, I don't know. God tells David in the Davidic covenant this. Um, I'm in 1 Samuel, I need 2 Samuel, sorry. 2 Samuel, um, there it is. 16, no, Second Samuel 7. There we go, Second Samuel 7. Okay, um, he will build a house for me, okay. He will build a house for me, my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. What does that mean? Um, Saul received the Holy Spirit by God, and then through two particular acts of defiance, first he offered an unauthorized sacrifice and direct disobedience to God's prophet, second... Refusing to obey the commandment to totally wipe out the Amalekites. He saved Agag. He made a statue of gold for himself and gave people spoils of war. Through those two acts, he loses first the dynasty, then he loses the kingdom. And God takes his spirit from Saul, sends a harmful or evil spirit to torment Saul. David witnesses all this happen, and so God promises him when he makes his covenant with David, I will not do that to you and your offspring. Now, what we make of that, that's why David prays in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me now understand under the old covenant the holy spirit was not given regularly to believers and the holy spirit wasn't given as a seal we have the holy spirit as a seal so we can't it's a guarantor it's 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 the deposit of what's to come jesus has gone to prepare a place for us and he gives us the holy spirit as a seal so the holy spirit's function in the church no christian can lose the holy spirit the, john ten twenty eight says what jeff Yeah, no one slips through his hand. So, But Saul losing the Holy Spirit doesn't necessarily indicate Saul losing or gaining salvation. There's all sorts of strange people who the Holy Spirit came upon, like Balaam, um, who I don't think we're going to suggest is going to be in heaven. So having the Holy Spirit upon you in the old covenant was not a proof or a sign that you were in a right state with God. But, as you point out, my steadfast love departed from Saul. Yeah, and there's debates to this day about whether we'll see Saul in heaven if we do he probably committed the single highest handed sin in the old testament when he slaughtered the priests at nob remember david flees to the temp the tabernacle and they give him the showbread to eat and he takes the sword that he killed the goliath with and he lies to them tells him he's on a mission from saul well saul hears about it shows up you're aiding and abetting my enemies they say no or no well, he told us because saul has not publicly gone on to take on david he hasn't tried to attack david yet publicly so there's every reason the priest would believe david when they said he was on a mission saul doesn't care he strikes them all dead so it's possible saul will be in heaven i don't, I don't know what to make of it i freely admit that's <laughs> g- very astute of you i tend to think he won't be i tend to think saul's gonna perish but i could be wrong i, I couldn't get dogmatic on that one but naomi 37 points hope you're keeping track because at 100 you get a free coffee out in the foyer Okay, with that, God bless.